Does this work like this? I believe so. There we are. Let's turn in God's word to Isaiah chapter 6. I would like to just say as we kind of have this wonderful opportunity that for me part of the joy of this is that there is something of what God is doing among many churches all over the United States with what's called the Gospel Coalition. And one of your pastors here is one of the leaders of the Gospel Coalition here in Arizona. And we're thankful for Chuck and his labor among the different churches and giving leadership. And as we think of how God is at work and uh, the joy of seeing some old five, 6,000 leaders, pastors come together in uh, the different cities. And uh, in the past, the times that I've had the privilege of being there to hear uh, Tim Keller or John Piper or the others, uh, Al Mohler, other ministers, uh, bringing this together around the gospel and your great emphasis here of the gospel. And I believe that we have such an important element that on the one hand, truth is paramount. The gospel. At the same time, some of our differences and things that would be oh, secondary or even maybe lower on the list too often have kept us in our own tribes, in our own parties, in our own groups. And we haven't worked together with the gospel being central to who we are. So I'm very thankful for your pastor and the emphasis that you would have of the gospel being that which is the center of things. I uh, brought along a little thing that has been a, a real enjoyment, a little bit uh, light of uh, how sometimes people don't come together around the gospel. And uh, just let me read this before we look to the passage of scripture. Uh, it's called, I've named it the bridge. And uh, it goes something like this. Once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump, I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too, Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too, what franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too, Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. <laughs> and certainly it's sad and kind of uh, funny and chistoso, we might say in Spanish, but you know what? It's reality. Too many times we've not had truth 
as paramount. Instead, we've had our own tribe, our own group, our own party, our own little loyal gathering together. And I'm thankful that you stand for the gospel and ready to work to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. So as we come to this passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 6, I believe we have something here of great importance that empowers us with a vision of God's glory and grandeur and greatness. And so I would ask that as we come to this passage that we would bow in prayer and ask for God's blessing upon our time together. Let's pray. Father, we desire to send something of your presence with us this morning. Lord, we find our own hearts with such hypocrisy. We find in our own hearts that which is needful for your cleansing, for that work of grace in all of our hearts and lives. Lord, come with your Holy Spirit in such a way that we would know we've been in your presence, and that you've touched our minds, our hearts, that you have worked in our lives, that Christ may be seen in us. Oh God, speak to us this day. We ask now, Lord, for the reading of your word, that you would cause your Holy Spirit to give us the great principles that are here. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Certainly, Isaiah chapter 6 is one of those great passages that we must read with understanding, not that we would try to somehow or another think we could repeat what took place. The temple moves. The vision that Isaiah has as the one who is called by God to be a prophet, to speak the very word of God. None of us here are going to try to repeat this. We couldn't. You can't imitate these things that are part of what we call the history of redemption, the history of salvation. Yes, God was at work and calls this prophet to speak the word of God to the people of God at that point in time. But also for us today, there are great principles that we need, a great vision of who God is, a great vision of who we are, a great and wonderful vision, yes, of his calling to us this morning. Yes, how we have that calling and that great salvation that comes to us and the church of Jesus Christ. So these are principles, not that somehow or another we could repeat these things because it's the one who appeared as John speaks of this very passage in John 12, 41. It was Jesus who appeared here to Isaiah, and he is in heaven now and will remain there until he comes again in power and glory to restore all things. The church of Jesus Christ, yes, is built upon the apostles and prophets. We have the word of God. We aren't seeking for more. It's enough. It's sufficient. It's all we need. We don't need third Peter it would be gathering dust just as often first and second Peter gather dust. We have the word of God. That's enough. So let us hear God's word. In the year King Uzziah died, 
I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant. Until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravished until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And then verse 13. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as a terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. I believe this passage really is one of those great passages we need for the church of Jesus Christ in our day right now. Certainly, a passage that we have before us is one that gives us that biblical view of God. Those first three verses there, I would ask you to notice how important this is. We can't think rightly about anything if we don't think rightly about God. If we don't understand who God is, we can't do anything else in all of creation. So how important the attributes of God are for us to understand all of reality. First, it begins with, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up. And he's speaking here, I believe in a sense, very important for us, All those empires and rulers, presidents, they pass away. We think how important to have this one or that one. This king, Uzziah, had reigned for 52 years. For the most part, a very good king. At the end, he made some things that uh, did some things that he shouldn't have done, and he was 
struck with leprosy. All men die. Only God is eternal. Every one of us here are going to participate if the Lord does not come in power and glory. Every one of our bodies here will see death. It's the most democratic institution upon the face of the earth. <laughs> one death for each person. Leaves no one out. It walks upon the great palaces, the great people of the earth, and they die, no matter how much they have and how important they may be. They die just like those that live in the chosis or the little the huts and the little places of the earth. All face death. God alone is eternal. There is a great reality here of his being the Lord. It's appointed unto us, we're destined to die, but God lives forever. Notice, but through this whole passage, though, there is something so very important, and that is that God is sovereign. There is a great reality to this. He's the one seen upon a throne. He's the king. He's the Lord Almighty. He is the one who is in all, in a very, very real sense, he is the center of everything. He is the one that is the center. There's a Capernaum revolution that must take place. As we come to faith in Christ, we must see that the Lord God Almighty is the center of everything. So easy for us to think our needs, our, uh, what we want to have done, our will to be done, and even in our prayers, Lord, we pray too often, give me this, change that, give me my will, make life really comfortable for me. And we're not realizing that God himself is the center of all things. Not my will, but yours be done. He is the king. He is the Lord and not man. God is the sovereign Lord. As even a king in a pagan world, Nebuchadnezzar recognized all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he does according to his will among the inhabitants of the earth and in heaven itself. And no one can stay his hand and say to him, what are you doing? He's God. He's God. In fact, we can almost summarize our great faith. God is God. But notice also in this passage, it speaks that God is holy. It's almost like Isaiah's signature all through the book. It's only used a few times outside of, of the book of Isaiah. The holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Some 25 times all through every part of the book, he is the Holy One of Israel. He is the God who is holy. And elsewhere we find that this God, when people have come into close proximity to him, they wonder if they're going to die. Because all of us, being the sinners that we are, to be in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God is an awesome thing. His burning wholeness, holiness, to see him and live. How can that be? But then notice something I think is important in our passage. 
That is, that God is triune. And I believe if you look, certainly sometimes in the Old Testament, we don't have what we call a clear revelation of the Trinity, but we do have with the light of the New Testament, just as if we would turn all these lights off here and cover the windows and everything, all the furniture that's in here and all the people that are here, they're still here. Even though we can't see it all, it's still present. Open one of those windows and maybe turn on a few lights and we begin to see it. And the more light we have from the New Testament, the more the presence of Christ we see and the Holy Spirit all through the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh, he is present all through the Old Testament at all the important points of all the Old Testament scriptures. He is there, he is there, he is leading them through the wilderness. The Lord Jesus was the one who, and the only one who was born, and it wasn't a new person, he always was. And so we have here in this passage, I believe, verse 8, when it says, with such clarity, really, then one of the, it speaks of the seraphs, and then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? So that in one sense there is that oneness, and at the same time a plurality in the very Godhead. As God said, let us make man in our image. There's a reality of God's very presence of his being the triune God. He is the Lord. But notice, again, back up into the passage in verse 3, a little expression that's there, and I think it's very important for us as a fuller understanding of who God is. Verse 3, it speaks there that holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. He is glorious. Whether we climb to the top of Mount Baldy in the summer and we get to the top 11,000 feet up there, we get to the very top and there's a cluster of of ladybugs, all kind of in a ball. And we see the glory of God and the insects around us all everywhere. And yet at the same time, we see the glory of God in the galaxies that it takes 50-some million light years to go across. And someone says, why such, a, why such a great, huge creation when here we are on this little blue dot? Why such a grandiose creation, universe that's so big we can't even begin to imagine its size. Because the glory of God must be manifest in all his grandeur and greatness. It's because our God is great and glorious and it needs a great creation to show forth that glory. I repeat to you, unless we think rightly about who God is, we won't think rightly about anything else. So we begin with God. But notice now, a biblical view of yourself and the world. We live in a world of racism. Some of the saddest things of our own history as a country. And where we are even this day, there's still racism that's contrary to the word of God. God has a people out of every tribe and people and nation 
and only the gospel really sees the reality how we become one in Jesus Christ. We have a world of lust and wars and violence and addictions. Why? Because what we have here in our passage, look at verses 4 and 5 when it speaks there, at the sound of their voices, at the sound of the their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me! I cried. I am ruined. I am dead. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. We never really understand our own sinfulness and filthiness and, and being so ruined as long as we keep comparing ourselves with others who commend themselves. Somehow or another, I'm better than you are. You, I, I mean, come on. And, and maybe, ah, maybe she thinks she's better than I am. And, and we all compete a bit. And who is really, well, we're really not as bad as those terrible people. The reality is when we begin to see who God is in his holiness, then we're undone, unclean. We live in a broken world. A broken world. And as we read in Romans chapter 8, you remember how it speaks of how all creation is groaning. How we read from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ how the man who practices sin, he's a slave to that sin. All creation groans there's a reason why the world we live in is so broken sin is a reality it's not just somehow or another I'm okay and you're okay and let's all just get along we're in trouble we're in trouble as a nation it's not just more jobs and better economy and something better and better and better and we'll be really something Wow our land needs the gospel. And so I would ask you to look with me at verses 6 and 7, a biblical view of salvation. Israel's very name, that I'm sorry, Isaiah's very name is Jehovah or Yahweh is salvation. What good news. And our, our wonderful salvation that's given to us. Notice these words. Then one of the seraphims or seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. We know that an altar has to do with blood sacrifice. We know with all that's there in the New Testament, as we look back, this points us. This points us to what Jesus Christ did on the altar of the cross at Calvary. This points us to what he has done. And yes, there is that reality of the Holy Spirit doing that work in our hearts, touching our very most sensitive part of who we are. And yes, there is this Guilt that's taken away. Our sin is atoned for. And yes, that's the great message. It's the God who has shown his love in Jesus Christ. It's the Lord himself who has shown forgiveness is 
by that living coal from off the altar that touches us. God's salvation is of love and grace. It is a great and glorious message of God's amazing love in Jesus Christ. It wipes away all our sin. It wipes the record of sin out out completely. It erases it all. We had the privilege of spending, oh, about seven years in Maravillosa, Colombia, in Colombia. And uh, during those years, one of our best friends was a man that is a Canadian. He's still alive. His wife has gone to be with the Lord. His name is Don Whiteside. He had a wonderful work out in the country and saw a Bible college started. He saw wonderful way in Medellin, Colombia, the gospel go forth into different parts in Sencelejo and Cartagena, these different places of Colombia. Don never told me his story, but his wife told me his story. He was a man who had spent some seven years, seven years in prison in Canada, a Canadian. And in those seven years, he spent about half that time, she said, in solitary confinement. But somehow, in the amazing grace of God, he came to faith in Christ. He came out, and his great desire was to go to Colombia, where he had done many things that were wrong and sinful, because he wanted to take the gospel to that land. But when he applied for a visa, again and again, and all that he did to make things right, they told him, the only way you could ever have a visa in order to go to Colombia would be if you've never done those things you have done. He had a record. Prison, jails, I don't even know all the stuff. I don't even know why and what he did. It came to an end, his great desire. You'd have to say, can't go. But it was about a year and a half later, his wife said they were working in another opportunity and a large envelope came. She said, we didn't know what it was. It was from the Queen of England. And it was a pardon for everything Don had ever done. So that when he applied for a visa, there was no record of his having been in jail, no record of his having been in prison. His record was wiped clean. Our salvation is one that wipes the record clean. We are cleansed. Whatever that sin may be, he wipes clean through that work of Christ on the cross. It touches us and gives us a cleansing. The record is gone. You can't find anything against us. A fourth area. A biblical view of calling and response. The question is asked, who will go for us? Verses 8 through 12, God calls us. And certainly the prophet was in a unique place for his calling, so very important, what he was to do. And somewhat of his calling was, as he brought the message, it was like the smell or the fragrance of death itself. They closed their eyes. They rejected the message. They turned away. We find that same thing in our day. The calling, though, 
was one that he responded to. And we are to respond to God's calling. It won't come like Isaiah. Don't wait for the temple to move. There's not a temple now. Don't wait for some extraordinary thing to happen and to see seraphs or something like that. But every one of us has a calling where God has placed us. There is a calling that comes to us. It comes to us from the Lord, not so much from the people around us. They may not want to hear. But it comes from the Lord. Who will go for us? There is this calling that goes. Certainly, it's a calling for engineers and janitors, landscapers, medical doctors, teachers, people that work in sales, artists, musicians, beekeepers, farmers, all the different callings. God calls us to those sacred callings, all of life. The gospel is for every corner of life. And we're called to take the gospel to those places where God has placed us, missionaries, pastor teachers. Here I am, Isaiah says, not that we're better than others. You know, if you look at this passage carefully, it's very interesting. It would seem every time Isaiah would have spoken, every time he would have talked, moving his lips, wouldn't he have had to remember how he was healed, how he was with unclean lips, and it was only the Lord who touched his life with the coal from off the altar that cleansed him and gave him righteousness to stand before others. We are to be with humility when we speak to others. Let me recommend a book to you that I think is so good by Dr. Tim Keller, Timothy Keller's book called The Prodigal God. Have any of you read that book, The Prodigal God? Fantastic. It's a book worth reading, but I would recommend if you're not wanting to read a book all the way through, there's 38 minutes where he gives a sermon and gives the message of that book, and it is a very powerful illustration that you can watch this DVD and see the gospel in a very living, powerful way. That elder brother said, I have served my father all these days. I've slaved for him. His heart was far away, just as much as the other brother who was what we would say in our language, the prodigal son. But it's really that God is the one who has given his all and whether they're full of their own righteousness or full of their own rebellion, all need the gospel. And so we go remembering, remembering how God has touched our lips and we don't go with a holier-than-thou attitude, but with humility. I can't talk to others without remembering the coal that touched my lips. Then there's one last point, principle from this passage that I would like to make this morning, and it's a biblical view 
of the church, verse 13. And if you'll notice that verse, it speaks of how everything becomes waste, and we've already had how people have rejected the gospel, cities laid waste, and it's almost like everything's been wiped out. But he says, there is yet to be a tenth. Even though it would seem like everything is waste, there is a holy people, a tenth, a holy seed. And we know that seed is Christ, and we know from that seed comes that multiplication of God's people in all the tribes and peoples and languages of the whole of the earth. There is this beautiful picture that's given to us of the holy seed that Christ will build his church and the very gates of hell or Hades or the grave, death itself, they will not be able to hold back the church entering into all the areas of life. The people come. The victory is a reality. There is this reality of this calling that all of us have to take the gospel to wherever we are. This God who is eternal, sovereign, holy, and yes, triune and glorious, it's the joy that we have in him that will strengthen us wherever we are. Now, we believe we are seeing in our day something of a real reformation taking place in Latin America. Just a few weeks ago, there was a conference of some 5,000 in the Dominican Republic. There are books going forth with the gospel in all these different places, in airports and in secular bookstores. There's these great opportunities of what God is doing. We are thankful for Poyema Publishing Company that's, yes, publishing tremendous books of John Piper and Tim Keller and Edmund Clowney and, and these different ones that are going forth the, with the gospel being center of all things, Christ the center. But I believe there's something also taking place that would almost seem impossible in our day. And that is, as we think of the atrocities of Nice, France, 84 killed as the truck mowed them down mile after mile or whatever it was along the beach area there. Horrible just to think of the hundreds of people who are dying in our own day. Christians and the atrocities that are going on. And the answer that most people would have would be wipe out these other people. Kill these people. Certainly the government has responsibilities to protect the citizens. But I believe we have something more powerful than all the guns and bombs and all those different things that you might put together with a multiplication of those things even. We have the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, even people of Islam. We have a gospel that can change hearts and people and nations. Muslims, too. I read just in these very days that in Vienna, Austria, 83 adults were baptized in a church. 40 of those uh, were 
Muslims from Syria, Afghanistan, and Iran. In Berlin, Germany, over the last three years, there's been 1,200 plus Muslims received into a church as members there. Now, you can say, maybe they're not all genuine. Maybe not. But God is at work. There are those who are coming to faith in Christ, and it would seem like that which is impossible. Let me give you a statistic that it's an amazing statistic that God is at work. In 1960, all the statistics and the workings and tracings that they could find, there were about 200,000 Christians who had a Muslim background. That's it, folks. In 2010, research came up with some 10 million. Over those 60, well, 50 years, I guess it is. My math is a little bad there. God has been at work. That's the most powerful thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We know it. That God, yes, has so loved the world that he has given his one and only son that whoever believes in him would have that everlasting life. It's powerful. The message of Islam, of destruction, doom, death. Our message of liberty. Yes, liberty, light, and love. It's a powerful message. It's the gospel. Obstacles, yes. Some have the fear of reprisal, losing their job, maybe being executed and having their head cut off because they become Christians. But God's gospel is so powerful, it can change people and the way they think and who they are. We need to have greater confidence and courage with this message. May God give that to us. Let me end with just a very simple story that touched my heart. I heard, a, actually, actually it was a, a series of messages by a missionary in Saudi Arabia. And in Saudi, as you know, is a very, very strongly against the gospel in so many ways, and especially missionaries. And uh, the story of this missionary that he tells of how he was invited to a, a very beautiful home, a large Saudi home, Muslim home, and what a privilege to go there. And, and they had the nice dinner and all that was involved. And during the dinner, he thought he heard people somewhere. When they got done with all that was the nice part of the dinner and everything, the, the hosts, they stood up and they said, we'd like to invite you downstairs. This man, he went downstairs and as he got there, the place was full all downstairs with about what he said were about 80 people. And they turned to him and they said, we want you to bring the gospel to all of us here. These are family and friends. He said, well, it's illegal. No, they've asked that you give them the good news about Jesus Christ. He was amazed at this opportunity. And afterwards he asked, how did this come to be? And the lady, she said, well, we've had for some years a little Filipino 
housemaid. And she would sing about Jesus all the time. And we began to ask her to tell us about Jesus. We often think if, oh, we could just have the great intellectual arguments that would be so powerful and we would triumph over these people. Oh, that we would have all these great and wonderful things. I'm for study. I'm for the university studies that all the ones are involved in. Yes. But you know what? We need more courage, more confidence, more joy in the Lord. People gathering together in a basement because a little Filipino maid in Saudi Arabia kept on singing and was full of joy. May God give us that holy joy together. Let's pray. God, you have been merciful to us in so many ways. We've had our eyes open to see the King seated upon a throne, high and lifted up. We've been privileged to see the one who is the Lord of lords and King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh Father, you'd fill our minds with how he is the center of all things. And then, Father, give us that holy calling to be those who are full of joy because our sins have been washed away, because we have been touched with the live coal from off the altar, and we cannot talk without remembering how great a salvation we have in Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, fill our minds afresh with the wonder and awe of your so great a salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.